So it's the beginning of the new year. I want to welcome everyone. It's been a it's been a while. <laughs> um, I flunked my uh, fitness test in the army, so I have to retake it. <laughs> but um, anyway, I want to talk today about something with great trepidation. My first memory as a child it was in Stamford Hill in London at three years of age on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, I don't remember. And my father was clearly bothered because I was whining in shul. And it was, I believe, at Unasana Toikov. And he stared at me. He glared at me. And I'll never forget that glare. That was my first memory. Uh, <laughs> I want to share with you a video. And who by fire? Who? This, of course, is Leonard Cohen's version of the Unasan and Tokev, chanted on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. It was released in 1974 in an album entitled New Skin for Old Ceremony. New Skin for the Old Ceremony. And it's one of the main songs of the album and actually one of Cohen's best known songs. The prayer Leonard Cohen heard as a child in the Montreal synagogue described God reviewing the book of life and deciding the fate of every soul for the year to come, as we will indulge ourselves today in that prayer on the Sanatoka, who shall live, who will die, and how, how they will die. The line, however, and who shall I say is calling is a break from our liturgy. He was pretty close to everything else, who will by fire, who by water. But who shall I say is calling is understood as a break from faith in God. According to Cohen, the element of doubt is what made the song into a personal prayer for him. The element of doubt. So let's dive into this prayer, Unasana Tokev, which really introduces Rosh Hashanah as a day of divine coronation and judgment. Coronation and judgment. The coronation theme derives from the creation of the world, Hayom Haras Olam, and the judgment theme from the creation of humanity. According to the Medrash, the Rosh Hashanah commemorates Adam Arishon's birthday, as well as his day of judgment and the day of his pardon. And how was he pardoned if he was banished from Eden? And the answer is that the original death penalty on the day of the crime was stretched to a divine day consisting of a thousand years, as we learn in Tehillim 90. This is a reduction in the sentence, not an acquittal. So it's an auspicious day for reduced sentencing, and Rosh Hashanah is then selected as our day for judgment. And Unasana Tokev enhances the dramatic effect. Remember, it's inserted after Ubechein, and before the recitation of the Kedusha. 
which evokes the appearance of Esther, Uvechein, I will go into the king. And if I am kasher or vadati or vadati, and if I am to perish, I will perish. So Esther's entrance into the king's quarters with trepidation sets the stage for our uvechein, our entrance in trepidation in the presence of the king of kings. And so let's just take a look at the six scenes of Unasana Tokev. There are six scenes. And each has a different theme. And to just summarize that, scene one, God and the heavenly court judge all living creatures on the Yomadin. Then two, one by one, Tol Boe Olam, all pass before God, Kivne Moron, like a cohort of soldiers being counted or shepherd counting his sheep, Kivne Moron. And then the book of life is opened. And on Rosh Hashanah, it is written, and Yom Kippur, it is sealed, who shall live and who shall die, who by fire, who by water, who by earthquake, who by plague. Then the dramatic climax, which you can see in your, in your machzas, Uteshuva, Utefila, Utstoka, Ma'avirin Esroha Gezira, they avert the severe decree. Then God wants the sinner to repent, and finally, Adam Man's origin is dust, and he's, he, he begins in dust, and he goes to dust, but God is the ever-living ever king. Now, if we look at, uh, closer at these six scenes, we have to start asking ourselves profound questions. Number one, it is a tremendous and awful day. And MS Kiatahu Dayon. So we're making a doxological statement of faith. You are the judge. The Yodea, Vaeid, You do everything. You present the material, you testify, you write the judgment, and you seal. And you reckon and enumerate. And you remember everything that's forgotten. And here comes the thing. You open up this book of records, which shall be read. And in it lies every person's Yad Fosam, his signature. I'm signing on to it. This is what happened. Then the scene, the next scene goes up to heaven. There, even the angels are terrified at the upcoming judgment. It begins with the blast of the shofar but not the one we are used to on Rosh Hashanah. Some say it's the eschatological shofar of Yeshayahu, as it says, in that day, Yitoka Bakol Shofar, there'll be a big sound, and those who are strayed in the land of Assyria and expelled in Egypt shall come and worship Adonai at the holy mountain. The shuddering of the angels also refers to an illusion for the shofar in Amos. Were a shofar to be sounded in a city, would the people not shudder? That's the same thing. And many consider this poem to be the pinnacle of the Rosh Hashanah liturgy. The poet, the Paitan, has painted a picture of the most solemn day of the year, which to him is Rosh Hashanah, not Yom Kippur. All other concepts associated with the day have been stripped away. No rather Oyam, awesome and terrible, is the only fitting words to describe it. The poet's primary concern is 
with the Mishnah's description of the first of Tishri as the day when humanity is judged, the Mishnah in Rosh Hashanah. And he fills in the details that the Mishnah only hints at to spread before us a terrifying spectacle of heaven and earth called to judgment. But this is not a day of suffering without hope. The severe decree, the penalty of death can be averted. There is a way out of this. Repentance starts with the relationship with the self. The prayer addresses our relationship with God. Charity works on our relationship with others. Teshuva utfila utstokra. The first involves the mind, the second the tongue, and the third the hand advancing from thought to word to deed. Now, the next section answers the question why God is so forbearing by presenting the divine perspective. Let's look at that. Because you have certain attributes. Why are you so forbearing? You wait until the day they die, accepting them immediately if they return. Because God is, his praise is just as your name. Kashelikos, slow to anger, the Noach Lirzos, and quick to be appeased. You do not desire the death of the contempt. And finally, the most dramatic point of everything, this last section, that man comes from dust and returns to dust. We labor by our lives for bread. We are like broken shards like dry grass, like a withered flower, like a passing shadow and vanishing cloud, like a breeze that passes, like dust that scatters, like a fleeting dream. But you, you are the eternal king. This final section depicts graphically exactly how fragile and transient human life really is. It goads us to anchor life in the permanent and eternal God. You are king, life and everlasting. It also addresses God, underscoring the gap between the human and the divine, intimating that God should be tolerant of our shortcomings and charitable in divine judgments, bringing us full circle to the open lines where God's throne is established in love. This is the most dramatic, the most dramatic prayer we have on Rosh Hashanah. Now, death, sickness, impoverishment, tragic as they may be, are not identical with evil. They do bear a potential for truly evil consequences. They can poison us, embitter us, fill us with self-pity, destroy a marriage, blind us to the needs of others, turn us away from God. But the evil consequences of even the most fearsome decree is not inevitable. Utshuva, utfila, utstoker. It cannot change the external reality. So if they cannot arrest the malignant cancer, they can indeed ensure that the evil potential in that reality will not become actual, but will pass. I guess that's what it means to enable us to transcend the evil of the decree. Now that word, transcend the evil of the decree, is very problematic. According to one Talmudic opinion in Rosh Hashanah 16b, four things mekarim a person's degree. Rip it up. Tzedakah, crying out, changing your name and changing your deed. Some add changing your place. According to the Yerushalmi in Tanis, three things 
Now here's the word you have to hear. Shlosha Dvorim Mavatlim the decree. Tfila Tsudaka Uchuva. Oh my giddy aunt. What just happened? The Paitan changed the Tfila from Mivatlin the harsh decree to Ma'avirin Esroa Hagizera. Wow. What's the difference between Mavatlin and Ma'avirin? It's critical. The Gomorrah is telling us near Shalmi that three things Mavatel. Mavatel means it never took place. Bitul. It's completely consumed. It's dissolved. Mavatlin, the harsh decree. And later Midrashim combined the last statement with the changing of the name, deed, and place. Tshuva, Tfila, Utstaka. And it puts, the, in the Sanatoke, it puts the Tshuva first and changes the verb from Mavatlin to Ma'avirin, meaning it passes over, or Ma'avirin from Roa. It, it mitigates the hardship of the decree. So what is gained by this switcheroo from the Gomorrah to the Paitan, to the liturgy? What has happened theologically between the Gomorrah's statement and the Machsa? By placing Tshuva first and keeping the number to three, it evokes the famous triad in Pirkei Ovos. The world stands on three things, Torah, Avoidah, and Gemilas Chasodim. As if to say the outcome of the judgment stands on three things. Tshuva, Tvila, and Stoker. Av- Torah, Avodah, Gmilas Chasodim now become Tshuva, Tvila, and Stoker. Tshuva replaces the Torah, but the other two are comparable, just more specific. By prioritizing Tshuva, it paves the way for its prominence in the next section. The second change weakens the force of the verb mevatel to ma'avir. The decree is only mitigated. It is not abrogated. Ma'avir rishon rishon. He removes sins one by one is found in Rosh Hashanah 17b. As in the machse, such as in E melech yoshev al kisei rachamim, as we will be saying at least 10 times over Yom Kippur. Ma'avir rishon rishon. This denotes mitigation, not abrogation. The problem is, for me, <laughs> that replacing the verb mavatlin with ma'avirin makes the decree, the gezeira, difficult. Decrees are torn apart or abrogated. They're not just passed or mitigated. And so the solution was to add the word roa. The harshness is mitigated. It is mitigated through tshuva, tefillah, and sadaka. Let's go into who wrote this. The following is a translation of the text of the earliest version of the Amnon narrative, and it's based on an edition from Jitomer, based on an Amsterdam manuscript. So this is the oldest one we have, and this talks about a place in Ashkenaz. I'm showing you this because I wanted to show you, this is Martin Gilbert's wonderful cartography of how the traditions went from the Jerusalem Palestinian Minhagim through the Mediterranean, through Italy, Livorno, Venice, Genoa, Marseille, Avignon, to the Tosafists of France, and then come into Germany in the time of the Crusades, the 10th century. And Schum is a, an acronym for the cities of Mainz, Speyer, and Worms. This is where Richard the Lionheart went through in the First and Second Crusade, 
many Jews were killed here. And Simon the Chronicler and Rebbe Ephraim of Bonn wrote keynotes that you can see in the keynotes for Tisha B'Av from these towns. One of these towns we're going to talk about now is the city of Mainz. And here's the story. This is the translation of this earliest version of Rebbe Amnon of Magenza. Amnon of Mainz. I found in the handwriting of Rebbe Ephraim of Bonn that Rab Amnon of Mainz wrote the liturgical poem Unasane Toikov. How did it come to be? An incident involving Rab Amnon of Mainz, the greatest figure of his generation, the Gadol Hador, and a man of wealth and family lineage. It happened that the ruler tried to persuade him to convert to their religion. He refused to listen to them, and they would talk to him about this day in and day out. But the ruler pressed him one such day and forced the officers on Amnon so much that he said to them, I want to consult with others and think it over for three days. And here is the dramatic story that Rav Amnon was then filled with guilt that he even had tried to delay, obviously, his sentence of death because it was under penalty of death, either convert or be killed. And he was racked with guilt that he said, give me three days, give me three days. He said that only to get them off his back. But as he left the ruler, he remembered that he had answered the nivel pair by saying the obscenity to the ruler that he would take counsel. And he realized that it sounded that he was uncertain about his faith. Did he really need any advice or further thought about denying the living God? He returned home and could not eat and drink. He grew ill and relatives and friends came to comfort him. And he refused to be comforted, saying, no, I will go down mourning over my words into the Sha'ol, like Yaakov Avinu. And he grew despondent. On the third day, he was writhing in agony. The ruler sent for him, but he said, I will not go. The enemy sent more dignitaries to him, each one more distinguished than the other. He still refused to go. Finally, he said to his soldiers, Bring Amnon to me right now, even against his will. They rushed out and got him. He said, what is the matter, Amnon? Why did you not come on the day you said you would after getting advice and answer me in obedience to my demand? Amnon answered him, I will determine my punishment. The tongue that lied to you should be cut. He wanted to sanctify God for having said what he said. But the ruler replied, no, I will not cut off the tongue because it spoke well. Rather, I will cut off the feet, which did not come when you said you would, and I will torture the rest of your body. The enemy then ordered that his fingers, hands and feet be cut off joint by joint. At each stage, they asked him, do you want to convert to our faith? And he said no. When they finished cutting them off, the wicked one commanded that Rabbi Amnon be laid out on a shield, his severed fingers next to him and sent him home. Now, the reason he's called Rav Amnon is because he is He'emin. He is believed in the living God and suffered tortures out of love for his faith. He asked his relatives to carry him to the synagogue on Rosh Hashanah with the preserved parts of his fingers and to place him near the cantor. They did so. And when the cantor was about to recite the Kedusha and the beasts which are, Rav Amnon said to him, wait a moment, I want to sanctify the great name. And he replied in a loud voice, and so may holiness ride up to you, meaning I have sanctified your name on the account of your kingdom and unity. Afterwards, he said the poem, Unasana Tokev, 
It is true that you are a judge, shofet u'mochiach, and a rebuker, in order to justify God, that all his finger and footparts should rise before him, as well as the entire story. And then when he says, everyone's chosem is on his sinful deed, you will remember to punish every living being. When he finished the siluk, the prayer, nistalek, he vanished and disappeared from everyone. And about him, it is written, how abundant is the good that you have in store for those who fear you. Now, this is the story behind Unasanatoike. This is the story behind the story. And every child in yeshiva learns it. Every, every child knows it. The question is, is there any truth to it? And when I was uh, living on the West Side, I asked my Shver Oliver Shalom to introduce me to the librarian at JTS, Professor Schmelzer, huge Talmud Chacham, but he had access to all the manuscripts. And I needed to know, you know, is this true or not true? And that was the first piece of scholarship I ever did. That was the first piece that got me into the world of, uh, of Jewish scholarship. And for many scholars, the narrative is fiction. It's not history for the following reasons. Number one, Rav Amnon, who is described as one of the great of his generation, wealthy and good lineage, is not mentioned in any other medieval source as a poisek, as a tosafist, as one of the Hasidei Ashkenaz. Number two, as the story says, Ki hemin be'al chai, he was believed in the living God. Amnon and Hermin is too much of a coincidence. Number three, it says Yasad, he founded or composed on the Sanatokov. But at the end of the story, it says Amar, implies it was an already existing poem. It is called Siluk, which leads into Kedusha. And the story that says Rav Amnon recited it as the Chazan was about to recite the poem, the Chayot which is in the middle of Kedusha, represents a typical python from the Kalir of the 7th century. And the story concludes when he finished the Siluk, Nistalek, and disappeared. The Siluk and Nistalek is a very clever play on words. Finally, most importantly that I discovered that the gruesome punishment of dismemberment was not existing at this time in Germany, in the time of the 12th century. There was, however, a medieval Ashkenazi rabbi who asked to think for a day about converting to Christian. And he was none other than Rab Kalonimus Kalman Meshulam, who is mentioned at the end of the story. And the scholars now believe that Unsana Tokiv was composed in the land of Israel is in the Byzantine period, which explains why it wafted through Martin Gilbert's uh, analysis. In the second volume of his magnum opus, Otsa Hashira Vahapiyut, published in 1929, Israel Davidson already realized that this poem was not written in medieval Ashkenaz. He writes, its simplicity of style and lucidity of expression are reminiscent of the most ancient of prayers. So let's go back to the text. Doesn't matter who wrote it. <laughs> the theology of the Sanatokov is bothersome. Each of uh, the claims in the Sanatokov is worth pausing to think about. People dying before their time building fires, starvation, drowning, natural disasters, being mauled by animals. These are not figments of the prayer's author's imagination. Every year, people in their thousands die in the real world under these circumstances. <laughs> As we know, Miba Mind from last week, 
Mibaesh from California, from hunger. How does the reminder that we all face the threat of such misfortune sit with us as we read Unasana Tokev? Unasana Tokev, for me, seems to attribute, in its pure medieval way, <laughs> the attributes of guilt to those who suffer and die. This theology has big problems. If Rosh Hashanah is the day of judgment and our names are inscribed in the two books in front of us, then how can we, in this post-Holocaust era, how can we think about the theology behind Onasana Togrev, how we can read it for ourselves? There are a lot of references to hellfire and damnation. And in fact, there is a Christian um, service called the Reyes. And that Christian service has many parallels with the Unasana Tokev. Kaminka and Werner have shown that the Unasana Tokev bears striking similarities to the hymn of Romanus upon Christ's reappearance. The Unasana Tokev, the formula is, is beyond mere speculation. The angels shudder and fear in Unasana Tokev. Everything trembles in Romanus. You open the book of records in Unasana Tokev. The books are opened. The hidden things are made public in Romanus. The angels shudder. The angels are dragged. They say it is the day of judgment. They cry, glory to thee, the most judge. The great trumpet is sounded. Upatoka yitoka shofa. Upon the sound of the trumpet in Romanus. They are not pure before thee. Nobody is pure before thee. And as the shepherd musters his flock, kivne maron, like a shepherd he will say, and in Romanus, therefore, penitence and prayer will serve you. Now, Menachem Zulai pointed out that the Unasana Tokov is actually is a very ancient Geniza fragment. So if it was found in the Cairo Geniza, that predates Ashkenaz by 200 years. That's the most important piece of archaeological evidence. Late 8th century, before Rav Amnon was supposed to have composed it. Okay, so how do we make sense of this all? How do we put it together? And I would like to suggest that rather than looking at the Sefer Chaim and Sefer Moves as a kind of stick that we beat ourselves up, that the motivation to do tefillah, uchuva, utstoka is the Nasana Toikev and everything that's going to happen, miba eish, miba mai, miba rav, miba tzama. And that's used as a stick in order to reorient us to do penitence. Could we possibly now look at the world we live in, Aish, Mayim, Sama, as realities? And that the book of life, we start off when we're young, it is thick. And the book of death is very far away. There's only one or two pages. And as we go through life, that book of life, our past, as uh, Kundera once said, the past is another life. That past gets smaller and smaller and smaller, the leaves of those pages, and the leaves of the pages of the Book of Death start becoming more and more in terms of their volume. They start piling up. And how do we accommodate to that? How do we face the inevitable? We're told it could be through many different ways. You know, we, in the modern say it could be through a heart attack, through cancer, through bleeding, through a cerebral hemorrhage, through an aneurysm, right? We could substitute me by age, me by mind with all the modern medical technologies. But it's the same outcome. How do we befriend death? How do we come to terms with that which is inevitable? And I think that there is now a growing sense that the more our culture denies death, he has a battle with cancer 
and then he lost. He lost the battle to cancer, like this military kind of terminology, because there cannot be death. There can only be life and ways to fix it. You go into an oncologist, he tells you you have cancer, and the next 59 minutes of the discussion is all about the tools we're going to do to fight it. He's not going to tell you that it's terminal. He's not going to tell you that there's no, he's going to tell you the strategies. And even in hospice care, the, the notion of palliative care is to remove the sting of death, the sting of the end, facing the end, the terror of the end. And I want to suggest that Rosh Hashanah may be a time as we come through cyclically every year through the same prayer, that it's an opportunity to turn that leaf over from the book of life to the book of death so that we come slowly to an acceptance, which why do I say that? Because the more you accept that, the more you live. And the more you deny death, the less you live because you're living in the fear of death. And I can tell you that from my patients, from personal experience, this terror of the dying. My smokers who have, you know, stage one, two and three cancer, and my patients who, who come to me for pain management who have terminal illness, the absolute terror is because they have not faced the facts and the truth of our mortality. And I think that this might be a, a spiritual opportunity for us, like, <laughs> not the way my mentor, Leonard Cohen, writes. And who, who, who's doing the asking up there? How did, how, after what we've been through, a thousand years of, of me by age, me by mine. That's a very heretical and wonderful way of reading it of the Unsana Toka. Who, who's doing the asking? Of, who's up there saying that? But more a kind of internal process of acceptance so that when the final time comes, we're not filled with that terror. We're not filled with that original glare that my father gave to me when I was three years old and filled me with terror, night terrors, of what this implies. And I think we have to move away from that Christianization, that Byzantine Christian view, and to move into a more tolerance of self. And we have to be more giving to ourselves, charitable to ourselves, respect for ourselves. And the way we do that is by doing the inner work uh, of facing uh, the book of death. Have a wonderful fast and Yom Kippur, be Basimcha. We are promised that the day forgives. Don't beat up on yourselves. <laughs> and we should meet only with good times.